Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Edward de Bono, who was a pioneer of creative thinking processes, said that the unique aspect of the creative thinking process is that something does not have to be true, logical, or ethical to be useful as a stepping stone to another idea or insight. Often, something new develops in reaction to something else. The reaction serves as a stepping stone to the new thing. Here are a couple of examples that come to my mind. The first is, is that what has been called the seeker-oriented church movement arose in reaction to the awareness that evangelism techniques used by churches for so long in the revival tradition were no longer working. The second is, is that critical race theory arose in reaction to the experience that colorblindness as the governing lens for judicial decisions, contrary to its intent, sustained, perpetuated, and cloaked or hid white racism. My guest today is Dr. John Pierce. John is executive editor and publisher of Good Faith Media. It was in reaction to a report by the conservative evangelical Barna Group that led John to start the Jesus Worldview Initiative. He is here to talk about how this initiative came about, what it is, and what it hopes to achieve. In this time in which so many are turning away from the church because of the way the church wounds people, it is important to hear about counter-narratives of hope that offer an alternative to the dominant Christian fear-based story. Welcome, John. Thank you for being with me this evening. Well, it's good to be with you, David. Well, let's begin by giving you the opportunity to kind of tell your own spiritual journey, and especially as that led you uh, into being uh, an editor of Good Faith Media. Well, I grew up in a very nurturing, close community, and the center of that was church life, and there's where I made my initial commitment and was baptized at age eight. And uh, that church cared for me a great deal, and I'm really grateful for what I learned and experienced in that kind of community. And when I reached college age, I began to sense some call to ministry, and of course, uh, not knowing exactly where that would go and having no idea that it would uh, turn out to be what it is today. But I spent my first 13 years serving in campus ministry in the Atlanta area, first at Kennesaw State University and then at Georgia Tech. And then I backed into journalism as a second career in 1994. And I've been in my current position since 2000. So while this kind of work, this kind of ministry was never my uh, early vocational aim, I feel my gifts and interests are being well used. And so it's very gratifying and meaningful work. What brought you into journalism? Well, my friend and mentor, Bill Neal, became editor of the Christian Index, Georgia Baptist Convention newspaper at the time. And he would ask me to write uh, an article on occasion while I was a campus minister. And I remember writing one about a Habitat for Humanity family, another one when the Super Bowl was in Atlanta and uh, NFL players were uh, joined by the 
TV casts from Home Improvement, Tim Allen and others, to build a Habitat house. And Bill asked me to go write that story, and I did. And he continued to encourage me to uh, do more of that. And I was quite surprised when he invited me to join him as managing editor. I felt ill-equipped for that, but he assured me I could learn on the job, and I'm really grateful for, for the opportunity to do that. Well, you you are now the executive uh, editor for Good Faith Media. Uh, talk about that work in ministry and how that came about. Well, after a time of real extensive and enjoyable conversations during 1999, uh, Good Faith Media was formed in 2000. You know, there's no better time to form a new organization and launch it than in the middle of a pandemic, but that's what we did. <laughs> and uh, it brought together the resources of two nonprofit organizations, Ethics Daily, which was led by Mitch Randall, and Nurturing Faith, which I was leading. And by coming together, we were able to combine the administrative and business aspects and then to offer a really much wider variety of media resources. Each organization really brought something to the game. Uh, Nurturing Faith Journal, which I edit, includes a lectionary-based weekly Bible study by Tony Cartledge. We also publish a wide array of books under the Nurturing Faith imprint. And Ethics Daily brought some real expertise in the area of video and podcast. Our media producer, Cliff Vaughn, oversees the production of all of those, and they are just excellent. And then, of course, we created a whole new website that has daily news analysis and a lot of other content online at goodfaithmedia.org. It's worth checking out. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I hope my listeners will do that. Because it is, I, as I as I've looked at it uh, and kept up with it, it it's it's excellent material, uh, and I appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, you um, you have now uh, been in the process of developing uh, the Jesus Worldview Initiative. So, kind of explain what that is and how that kind of came about. Well, it was nothing intentional. Uh, this initiative evolved and continues to evolve out of an editorial I wrote a few years ago in response to a press release from the Barna Group. Now, I get a lot of press releases as an editor, so I don't always pay close attention to everyone. But I noticed in this particular release that there was an announcement that their research was showing that only 17% of, quote, practicing Christians hold a, quote, biblical worldview. And I thought that was odd. 17%, only 17% of practicing Christians hold a biblical worldview. So I began to look at it more closely, and I was astonished to see that for research purposes, they defined a practicing Christian as someone who goes to church once a month and considers their faith important, I thought a practicing Christian was someone who follows Jesus. I simply couldn't believe that you could define a practicing Christian apart from Jesus. And their definition of a biblical worldview had six points that pretty much ignored Jesus as well. So in response, I wrote an editorial titled, 
how about a Jesus worldview? And I thought I had written my 800 words for that issue and it would be done. But I was surprised at the response from some readers as well as some of my colleagues who suggested we dig into that matter a bit more. So I found a podcast in which George Barna, the Barna Group, and the discredited fake historian David Barton of Texas discussed these findings. And it became clear right away that they were advancing Christian nationalism, which had no place for following Jesus. My colleague, Bruce Gorley, who is a real historian, and I began to research and write more on the topic. And we were getting really good feedback from our readers and from others. And so we wondered what it would be like to gather a few people, good thinking ministers and laypersons for a retreat just to discuss these issues more deeply. Now, I knew if we held the meeting in Atlanta or Richmond or Greensboro somewhere, half the people we invited wouldn't come. The pastors would be on their phone dealing with matters. Somebody would go home for a funeral. So I suggested to my friend Bruce, who lives in Bozeman, Montana, is an expert on Yellowstone National Park, that we host the retreat in West Yellowstone so that we would be removed from the distraction and get more of the group's attention. And I knew if I invited them to, hey, come to Yellowstone and talk about Jesus, they were likely to come, and they did. But what we discovered was that once someone notices the extent to which Jesus is absent from much of Americanized Christianity today, it becomes impossible to not see it. So the goal of the Jesus Worldview Initiative is simple, to refocus Christianity on following Jesus and to create a congregational culture in which following Jesus takes priority over any other ideology or emphasis. Well, you talk about um, kind of a distinction uh, in the understanding of what worldview is uh, between a prescriptive and a descriptive uh, understanding. Develop what you mean by that. Well, my friend, Dr. Colin Harris, is a retired religion professor from Mercer University, and he responded to my initial editorial by noting how philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 18th century used the German word for worldview to describe how people understood their world. And he told me that later it became common in theological biblical studies circles to speak of a biblical worldview in terms of how people in that particular time and context understood reality how they understood their world based on their scientific understandings and their cultural perspectives. For example, a Bible scholar might uh, compare, for example, the biblical worldview, or it was sometimes called the ancient worldview, in contrast to our modern worldview or scientific worldview. So that was a very common way of discussing the biblical context. Merriam-Webster, I found, traces the first use of the English word worldview to 1858, and it had the very same meaning, simply the way somebody thinks about the world. 
So simply put, worldview for a long time meant that in different times and places, the world is seen through different lenses based on one's knowledge and culture. So it was a descriptive term. It referred to what one perceives, not what one believes. But I discovered that in more recent years that authoritative religious leaders have taken that word worldview and used it to redefine Christianity as something other than the faithful following of Jesus. They use the terms uh, biblical worldview or Christian worldview rather interchangeably. And then they can arbitrarily come up with whatever they choose doctrinally and politically to represent that biblical or Christian worldview and say that these are the essential beliefs that are prescribed in order to be a real Christian. That's what Barna did with the six points. That's why only 17% uh, made the mark because it was an arbitrary listing of beliefs that were offered as essential. And apparently the life and teachings of Jesus are non-essential because they are often omitted or at least downplayed in these biblical or Christian worldviews. Well, what do you think the agenda is uh, of these evangelicals uh, like the Barna Group that are seeking to kind of redefine uh, the way the word worldview is used? Well, we can't know someone's motives for sure. Is it intentional or is it accidental? But I'm guessing the former uh, because it allows for advancing the exclusionary politics of white Christian nationalism and doing so without the burden of Jesus's life and teaching. Yet it's done in the name of Christianity. So I have to believe it is an intentional shift away from the demands of following Jesus to something else. I picked up a little bit on how that seems to work. Uh, and I think it's been happening in really for quite a while in much of Americanized Christianity. It occurs due to a shift in emphasis from following Jesus to believing the Bible. And then belief in the Bible can be defined however someone wishes, even if it is if, even if it is at odds with Jesus' life and teachings. But I think if we look more closely at the Gospels, we see that Jesus didn't call his disciples to believe the Bible or attend church or affirm a doctrinal list. He told them, follow me. And let's just admit it, it's a whole lot easier to believe a list than to follow Jesus. Well, you talked about um, in your own uh, uh, reading of, of this, and, and uh, like you say, Jesus uh, saying, follow me, uh, you use the, uh, I guess, the question uh, from the lawyer, uh, you know, what is the summary of the law? And uh, you're saying, that it kind of boils down to essentially uh, how we treat God and how we treat others. Develop that for us. I've often said in my preaching that the Bible is really only about two things, uh, how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. And uh, 
Jesus was quite clear about how to rank his commandments. Uh, loving God with all one's being and loving one's broadly defined neighbor as oneself are the greatest commandments according to Jesus. And then he added that all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So I don't see how that's debatable as a priority for followers of Jesus. There was once a popular evangelism campaign called the Four Spiritual Laws. Jesus says there are two. And so how do you, um, how, you talk about um, developing this in, in, in a church culture. Um, how do you understand what does church culture mean? Um, I would say that church culture is what defines the church. The congregational culture is discovered by the questions that are asked when the church expresses itself communally. Uh, are they asking how this project or this program aligns with their primary commitment to follow Jesus? I knew of a church that went through a two-year interim period without a pastor. And since the pastor always initiated communion, it wasn't done for two years. And no one noticed. But someone removed the American and Christian flags from the sanctuary for a wedding one Saturday and failed to return them before worship on Sunday. And according to one observer, all hell broke loose. That says something about the congregational culture. It has to do with priorities. Well, and like, like you say that, that your initiative uh, is to uh, develop creative and collaborative ways of shaping the uh, Jesus worldview within a Christian culture. Um, how does that, how does that happen? Well, as I said, this thing has really evolved from a, an editorial to conversations, to retreats and, and on to publishing. So there was no uh, strategic plan for this. We didn't set out to develop the Jesus Worldview Initiative in a particular way or time frame. We've done a lot of writing about it in the journal and online. I've preached about it. I've heard others do so. My colleague Bruce Gorley and I, sometimes together and often apart, have spoken to churches and church organizations about it all across the country. A retired pastor, Leroy Spinks, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, was captured by the idea and wrote a book uh, titled The Jesus Lens, Bringing the Bible Story into Focus. And then last year, we released a book by veteran North Carolina pastor Jack Glasgow, titled Seeing with Jesus, Developing a Worldview Shaped by the Gospels. Both of those books we have published at Nurturing Faith, and they're available online at uh, our bookstore at goodfaithmedia.org. And we've continued to hold small group Jesus Worldview retreats in West Yellowstone uh, because the first experience was received really so well. But the big news is that there's a major curriculum piece for congregations that will be announced by one of our partners later this year. We've been in collaboration over this for a while, and I don't want to get ahead of them and steal their thunder, but it will be a great resource for congregations to use to really deal with the issue of the priority of Jesus. 
and it's going to be widely promoted in various places, including our website. So if people pay attention to what's happening with goodfaithmedia.org, they will know the details of it pretty soon. But the idea is that for this to be effective, it must be more than just something some congregational denominational leaders are talking about. It has to take root within churches in order to shape the congregational culture in such a way that the priority of following Jesus is embedded there and that no other ideology can take its place. Well, what were some of the results of the of the retreats that you've had? How was how was the retreat structured? Uh, and, and well, the, it's not highly structured, and that's what I think really made it work. We would in, we invited the ministers to come, and we told them to uh, what day to arrive and what day to depart from the airport in Bozeman. And when we picked them up at the airport, we told them to relax. They were no longer running their church or anything else to let us take care of them for a week. And we wanted their most difficult decision to involve a menu at a restaurant. And that environment out West allows for some of that. There are places where you don't have a phone signal and uh, you're able to relax. The first thing we did was take them to a coffee shop in downtown Bozeman and I gave them a little bit of a lecture about the importance of confidentiality and being honest and trying to set the stage for uh, that kind of conversation. But then I asked them the simple question to honestly describe their congregational culture. And I said, don't tell us what you tell prospects or what the church committee told you about the church before you came. Tell us the honest congregational culture. One of the funny things is that one time the first pastor who spoke uh, told a little bit about the church, but painted a pretty good uh, picture of life there. The second person was brutally honest about what it was like and the struggles. And the first person said at the end, can I go back and amend my comments because I want to be more honest. So we start with the question of what is your congregational culture? And then during the week, we spend time at a ranch, often around a fireplace, where I talk with them about the Jesus Worldview Initiative, and we have conversations. And then we go into Yellowstone Park, where my friend Bruce Gorley is an expert, has just published a history of the park. And we just walk together, and we continue those conversations. So some of the best engagement we had took place either on the van together, driving through the park or out walking through the, the park together. And then as we move to the end of the retreat, I ask the question, then what do you want your congregational culture to become? And they use a lot of different words and phrases in saying it, but the essence is that we want to serve a congregation that has a clear priority on following Jesus. Well, a lot of what you've described and, and what uh, I've read uh, from the web the website um, parallels uh, seems um, compatible with the Ecclesia project. Um, there's a there's a sharing of the same idea, and I guess some of it focuses in my mind uh, around the idea because you you use the the notion that uh, you're wanting to uh, try to create uh, this uh, 
Jesus Worldview Initiative in a time of competing allegiances. Um, what do you see those allegiances to be? Um, and and um, how does how does like I say how does this initiative relate to the same kind of thing the Ecclesia Project's doing? Well, the competing allegiances tend to be narrow doctrinal statements and or political ideologies that are all deemed to be a biblical or Christian worldview. And boy, they include a wide range. Bob Jones University has a whole curriculum of um, homeschool curriculum based on what they call a a biblical worldview. And... uh, Oh, they range everything from teaching young earth creationism to anti-LGBTQ teachings to male authoritarianism to more. And then often uh, just very uh, hostile, even uh, political perspectives. So those are really the competing allegiances. And they get into the church and often get defined as being true Christian perspectives or worldviews. well, I'm not well acquainted with the uh, Ecclesia Project. We are certainly not the only ones noticing the absence of Jesus and calling for a clearer focus on following Jesus. Uh, Red Letter Christians are doing that. Brian McLaren, many others are doing so. But what I find with many of these efforts is they don't seem to be getting from the signing of statements and holding conferences and all that to the essence and emphasis of congregational life. So what I hope is that not only do we make lay leaders and ministers more aware of these issues and engage them in in the ways we have, but that somehow this gets into the congregational identity so that it's not just the pastor or a key lay leader or someone who's been to this conference or who reads these uh, particular authors or whatever, but it's everyone in the church when something comes up saying, well, how does this align with our priority of being more faithful followers of Jesus? Well, you um, have been doing this for a little bit now, and, and you've, you've talked some about what's going on within Good Faith Media, about uh, things that you've developed and, and, and books that have been written. Uh, but but um, how do you see the progress of this and kind of what's next? Well, I think this curriculum piece that will be announced this year is going to be uh, uh, significant. In fact, uh, uh, there are numerous congregations that are now being enlisted to do the initial uh, study of this together. So I I am looking forward to uh, that rolling out, being announced, and seeing uh, the impact that it has. I think it can. uh, I think it can be expanded into uh, churches really all across the nation. Well, already we'll start with numerous ones across the nation. But I'd like to see uh, what happens with that, the impact it has, and then since we are a publishing. organization, then it's important for us to have supplemental materials, Bible studies and other things, so that um, churches that engage this initial curriculum piece and say, hey, we want more, then we have uh, those kinds of resources that help them continue this this focus. But uh, 
the buy-in from congregational leaders is absolutely essential if it's going to uh, permeate the congregation. And that's been the great thing about the retreat is that it's more than just someone reading something we've written, but it's a way of engaging. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy doing is uh, hearing or reading the sermons that these participants preach upon return. Uh, I've listened to some very recently. There are two churches in which the pastor participated in one of our retreats that this year uh, they're doing a complete emphasis on following Jesus. One is using uh, the theme of Jesus 365 and another one's doing 52 weeks of Jesus. And those are directly coming out of retreat experiences. Uh, I was reading one of the sermons from a participant in our first retreat, and he said to his church the next Sunday, I expected stimulating conversations. I did not expect to come home with a disturbed sense of purpose and priority. Well, that's a pretty good testimony. So I think uh, the church could gain a whole lot from having a disturbed sense of purpose and priority that focuses our attention on that primary and initial call that Jesus offered his first disciples and offers to all of us, and that is follow me. Well, is, is the materials that are going to be available um are, are there is there training for the for the leaders or is this something that uh, folks can kind of get and read and, and apply on their own? Well, the good thing is I don't know because I've turned this over to some folks who uh, have more expertise than I in curriculum development and Christian education, and I did an orientation with them. I engaged several of them in uh, the two most recent retreats. And so they get the idea and they're using their expertise. Uh, and so I don't know exactly. I've not seen the resources. I do know that it will. Uh, it is intended to be church-wide and that there will be materials for adults and for youth and for children. But I, I do think there are other ways to engage. I mentioned Jack Glasgow's uh, book that, that we've published. and. Uh, one Christian educator was looking at that book and said, oh, this works perfectly for Lent. It has eight sessions with discussion questions, and it ends, uh, you, you know, perfectly with the crucifixion and the resurrection leading into Holy Week and Easter. And so she is actually using that book this year for the Lenten study in her church, and she's writing a study guide that we will make use of later as a way for churches to use this book uh, during the Lenten season. And I'd love to see us develop something similar for Advent next year. So uh, I think there'll be a lot of different ways. So by summertime or so, uh, we should know lots more. And I hope that there will be many, many resources for churches that are interested in focusing on the Jesus worldview later this year. Well, John, I'm grateful uh, for you uh, letting us know and uh, helping us understand more fully uh, about this initiative uh, and its ongoing progress. Uh, look forward 
to those materials coming out uh, and seeing how this develops further. So thank you for being with me. Well, thank you. And I do want to encourage uh, your listeners to visit goodfaithmedia.org. That's a good place for daily uh, information, but it's also a way to know what the latest resources that we have coming out and uh, when they're available and all. So that's the best way to keep in touch with us. All right. Well, thank you. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening. And for your support, blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.